Hi. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Thanks, Sydney, and thank y'all for being here. Um, my name is John Trapp. I'm the RUF campus minister here at UT. And, um, man, if this is your first time here, special welcome to you. Glad to have you here with us. Um, at RUF, we really um, hope that this will be a place on our campus that is kind of a, um, a refuge where people can come and experience love. Um, in my experience at UT, I love, I've really grown to love this place. Um, I didn't go to college here, but um, went to Vanderbilt, which, by the way, has a winning record all time in uh, football against UT. <laughs> just, just so y'all knew that. I want to make sure y'all knew that. It's the only SEC school that has an all-time winning record against Texas. Vanderbilt University. Go figure. Anyway, um, we're two and one. It's not that big a deal. But um, as I've been at Texas, I, I ha- one of the things that I have observed here is that UT is a hard place to experience love sometimes. Um, and our vision for RUF is that this will be a place where all kinds of people can come here and listen to what the Bible says about a God who loves all kinds of people. And uh, so wherever you are in your faith journey, wherever you are in terms of your relationship with God, we're glad that you're here tonight. And um, we're going we're gonna to see what the Bible has to say about a God who loves sinners like me, like us. Um, so to kind of set this up tonight... Um, I want to tell you about something that happened to me when I was in high school. So I um, turned 16, and I was one of my—I was like my first friend to get a car, uh, and we were all really excited. I got a—I got a '95 Chevy Tahoe. So pumped about it. Four-wheel drive, blue. It was my uncle's old car. I thought it was so cool. We could not wait. To just you know, we would pack out the car and cruise the dangerous streets of Tuscumbia, Alabama, um, in our, in my Chevy Tahoe. But, um, my friends would always, they would always like mess with my car and do stuff to my car because they thought it was funny or whatever, you know. So the other thing with me and cars, and sadly, this is still true. I know nothing about cars and they kind of knew that about me. And so they enjoyed messing with me on that. And so I remember, one day trying to pull out of my driveway at my house and my car was kind of, every time I'd go slow or like try to turn the steering wheel, it would kind of like lurch a little bit. And I didn't really understand like what was going on. It kind of felt like just like sticky, the wheels and I'm trying to, trying to figure out what's going on. And so I take my car to the gas station and I like fill it up with gas. You know, I don't know. I, I checked the, the, the air and the tires. Uh, I even went and got my oil changed trying to figure out what's going on. I'm looking at the gauges and there's no like check engine light on. I really have no idea what's going on with my car, but it still is lurching every time I kind of slow down or I'm turning. And so I finally just take my car to the car dealership, uh, to a mechanic. And I'm like, hey, my my car lurches when it's slow, and I'm turning out really understanding what it is. And he's like, oh, that's, that's okay. Like, just, have, just call your mom. We'll look at it. Um, she can come pick you up, and we'll call you when your car is ready. And so I go home, and like 30 minutes later, the phone rings. And they're like, yeah, you can come back up here. Your car is ready. 
It's like, great. Wow. That was, you guys are amazing. That was awesome. So I like show up and he's like, yeah, your car was in four wheel drive. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's like, that'll be $40. Awesome. Thanks. Great. $40. I found out my car was in four wheel drive. That's how little I knew and kind of still know about cars. But the, the, the reason I tell you that story is that like, I was looking at all of the wrong gauges to figure out what my issue was when the really obvious, clear thing that was my problem was sitting there right in front of me. And where we find ourselves in this text, we're, we're spending the next uh, three weeks, we spent last week on this too, looking at this chapter in the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And it's written to the church in Corinth, and they've, like on the outside, everything looks like it's going well in the church, but internally it's a total mess. Everything's a mess. And Paul is going to get at, he's writing this letter to them. He's going to get at what, what the obvious issue is for them. And as we like, as we dive into this, just a couple short verses. I know this is like a big change up from our big long Exodus passages that we were doing earlier this semester. As we get into this, I want you to think about how you would answer this question. I know some of y'all have heard me ask this, but I think it's important. If, so, if you hear somebody ask the question, what's your relationship with God like? Think how you would answer that. Okay, John Kelly, how would you? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make him answer that. <laughs> but like, think how you, would, you specifically would answer that. Okay. Can I tell you how I typically think about it? How, for a lot of my life, how I usually answer that question. What's your relationship with God like? I start talking about things like, I should be praying more. You know, sometimes I fall asleep in my prayers. I need to stop doing that or my mind wonders. And I like was praying, but now I'm not. And I feel really bad about that. Um, or like, now, I've, I've used to read my Bible more regularly, and I want to start doing that more. Like, oh, you know, it's, I've been going to Bible studies pretty regularly. I feel pretty good. Like, the question was, what's your relationship with God like? And the way that we answer it is we start talking about what we're doing. And I think that that's really instructive. Because what that's revealing is what we think our relationship with God is based upon. Like, if you ask me, what's your relationship with your wife like, John? And all I started talking about was like, well, I need to take the garbage out more regularly. And like, you know, I haven't been doing the dishes as much as I should. And I just start talking about things that I've been doing or not doing. Like, whoa, that's kind of a bummer for John and Chrissy. We should pray for them. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a good relationship. But what, what we are so prone to thinking is that our Christian life is based on some, our relationship with God is based on these visible things that we're doing. And that's what's going on with the church in Corinth. Because what we looked at last week is they've got all these visible things that they're doing that's amazing. Corinth was this very, it was kind of like the Vegas of the first century. Um, there was all kinds of just like immorality and wildness and partying going on in this very prosperous city. And then a church starts there, and it's just kind of amazing testimony. And all these people have amazing testimonies. And there's people who, there who are like rich or powerful or interesting, and now they're following Jesus. And 
at the church of Corinth, there's these amazing, like outwardly visible things that are happening. There's these great preachers that are in their city, that are in their church. There's great miracles happening in the church. There's people having great displays of faith, being willing to even be, um, to be persecuted for what they believe. And Paul looks at all of this outwardly visible stuff and he's like, hey, you can have all of that stuff going on and still have nothing. You can have all of that outward stuff going on in your life, but still not get it. And we do the same thing when we think about our relationship with God so often. And what I want you to think about is what if, what if the basis of your relationship with God is not what you do for him, but what he's done for you? Through the work of Jesus. What if, what if the way that we could start answering the question for anyone who has faith in Jesus, if someone's like, what's your relationship with God like? What if we could answer it just, he loves me. And I love him. Because that's what we have. Paul is saying, if, we, if you don't have love, you've got nothing. You can have all of these outer trappings, and if you don't have love, you have nothing. So let's look at this passage before we dive into it. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then um, we'll look closely at this, these words we've got before us. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would help us to not have nothing. Lord, um, I pray that this time would be valuable for these students. Father, that can only happen if your spirit is present with us now. Lord, I ask that you would help us um, to see you clearly tonight, to see your love for us, to see your love for sinners. And I ask that that would change us, that it would make us into people who love. Help us to see what love is and how to do it. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these two verses that follow Paul saying, hey, you can have all of these outer trappings and still have nothing if you don't have love. What he, what he says after that is he begins defining what love is. And it's these two verses I want to look at today as we think about the way of love. I'm, I'm just going to read it again. And I want you to listen closely. He's going to be very clear about what love is and what love is not. And those, that's literally my outline today. What love is. The first point is going to be what love is not and then what love is, okay? So listen to what Paul says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not rude or, I'm sorry, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So first let's look at what he says love is not. He kind of, he starts saying all of these things that it isn't. And The reason that he's doing this is because the Corinthian church is filled with this stuff. It's filled with envy and boastfulness. People looking at like these amazing things that they're doing in their faith and they're being arrogant about it. He says it's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. People are arguing about like who's the better preacher. They're literally having these arguments about that. They're being rude to each other. 
So like when they show up at church, there's a group of really wealthy people and they kind of do the Lord's Supper together and leave the poor people out of it. And by the way, when they do the Lord's Supper together, they're getting wasted on like communion wine. That's how jacked up this church is, y'all. And Paul is saying, there's like, your automobile is lurching right now. Like there's like an outward sign, these like things that we're seeing, like that's going on in the church, that something is wrong. But the inward reason for this, for these symptoms, the answer for why this is all going on is they are living a life that is self-centered. And love, biblical love by definition, is oriented to the other, to the other's good. And this is at like the heart of Christian theology. It's a big deal. That we have... A God in the Bible, as he reveals himself, who is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has existed for eternity. That's a whole nother sermon. That's a big, I know it's a big matzo ball I just kind of threw out there. But like, this is what the Bible is saying. That for forever, God has existed in the perfect community. He is a perfect community. He's one God in three persons. And Those three persons love each other perfectly. And they are oriented towards the good and the glory of the other. And so what that means is that a perversion of that, a perversion of love would be anything that goes from being other-oriented and for the good of someone else and centered on the self. This is the first temptation that the serpent puts before Adam and Eve. God knows that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like him. In other words, he's saying, look out for yourself. God's holding out on you. He's not oriented towards your good. Doubt God's love. And look out for yourself. And what happens when we begin living a self-centered life? It produces all of these things that Paul says love is not. It makes us boastful because we're seeking our own glory. And if we see something good about ourselves, we, can, we boast about it, or we humble brag about it, or we tweet how we're hashtag blessed. Like we figure out some way to do that. But not only that, it makes us envious. When we see something that's good in somebody else, instead of glorying in that wonderful thing about them, instead of enjoying the funny friend, we envy them, and it takes all the enjoyment away from it. Or instead of enjoying the beautiful roommate friend that's like all the guys like, And just be like, man, it's wonderful that God made her that way. There's envy instead. And wanting what they have. And it sucks the enjoyment and the love away from what we were made for. It makes us arrogant. We elevate our status above others and we're constantly measuring ourselves. It makes us rude. Paul says love is not rude. But when we're self-centered, it makes us disregard the experience of others and not care about them. It makes us irritable. It makes us very easily angered and kind of set off when things aren't going our way because my way is the right way. And it makes us resentful. It makes us angry about not getting our way when we're living a self-centered life. But here's the funny thing. Our culture is actually telling us that happiness is found in self-centeredness. 
that happiness is found in you doing you. Or happiness is found in living your truth. Or that happiness is found in like, it's okay to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anyone. Do what you want. And just two days ago in the New York Times, a columnist who I, who I love, like his stuff is really wonderful if you're ever looking for someone to read regularly. His name's David Brooks. And um, he wrote a column um, and he said, the article is titled, Five Lies Our Culture Tells. And this is lie number two. One of the lies is, I can make myself happy. He says, that's one of the lies our culture tells. Listen to what Brooks writes. He says, this is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. If I can have just one more victory, lose 15 pounds, or get better at meditation, then I will be happy. But people looking back on their lives from their deathbeds tell us that happiness is found amid thick and loving relationships. It is found by defeating self-sufficiency for a state of mutual dependence. It is found in the giving and receiving of care. It's easy to say you live for relationships, but it's hard to do. It's hard to see other people in all their complexity. It's hard to communicate from your depths, not your shallows. It's hard to stop performing. No one teaches us these skills. Why is this so hard? It's hard because our world is telling us that the most important thing is you and your importance and your performance. And the, here's the thing. The Corinthian church is killing it in the performance game. Like they are, they are well-known and famous and outwardly look like everything is just rocking and rolling. And like one of the reasons I wanted to preach on this to y'all is because like y'all are too. Y'all are killing it. You got into Texas. You're here. You, you're, the, the simple fact that you're sitting in this room means that you're good at the performance game. And uh, it made me think of uh, a, an, article, an article from the Washington Post. Sorry, I'm reading a lot of news articles today. Um, but I think it's fascinating. Our pastor read this at our church on Sunday. And I think it's, it's so true. And, it's, and it so gets at what y'all's experience is like of, of needing to perform. Uh, This article's title is, When Parenting Becomes a Religion, College Admission Officers Become High Priests. It's in the Washington Post. And the author says this, Take a drive around any upper middle class enclave in America, and within minutes, you will spot a a station wagon or three adorned with collegiate logos. These cars belong, by and large, not to college students, but to their parents. It is the grown-up version of the age-old, my child is, in, is an honor student at blank elementary school. Bumper sticker. Windshield school stickers have taken on a sinister aspect in the wake of the college admission scandal that has dominated our headlines over the past couple weeks. It turns out that for some, those stickers and the status they represent are worth risking prison for. Indeed, to more and more of us, the college admissions process represents the ultimate measure of personal and social value, 
or what some would call upper middle class righteousness. An acceptance letter to the right college constitutes a judgment of near religious significance. Perhaps that sounds like hyperbole. A friend once told me, if you're having trouble understanding fanatical behavior, which, by the way, trying to get into college and the parents orbiting around that situation can feel like fanatical behavior. He says, if you're, his friend told him, if you're trying to understand um, fanatical behavior, trace the righteousness in play and things will become clear. This helps explain why someone might commit felonies to circumvent a a university's front door. Actions like these reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our highest virtue. Parenting as redemption casts the child in the role of the Savior. Um, When personal success is the chief value... When you get somewhere by being good and your personal success is the chief value, that means you have to be your own savior. And uh, I hope you see how anxiety inducing that is. That because it's up to you and because our life experiences and there's all these variables in our life that can change, that you never can kind of be secure that something could happen or you could make one mistake and the life of success that you're on could just go off the rails and it's all up to you to save it and to keep that from happening and so you've got to be perfect. And if we view Christianity this way, that God relates to us based on what we do, that we, get, that we get to God by being good. Do you know what that makes us? It makes us boastful. Because we have something to brag about in our relationship with God. It makes us envious when we see somebody else who's like surpassing us in their religious fervor. It makes us arrogant or proud about how we're doing in our relationship to God. It makes us rude. This is, why, this is why it is so off-putting if you, if you ever have had the experience of like walking on um, a crowded street and there's a street preacher who's just like screaming at people and telling them how bad they are and there's no gospel message in there. And he may be saying things that are true, but like Paul says, if we have not love, we're a resounding gong. In other words, you can say something true, but if it's without love, you're wrong and you're rude. When we start believing that it's us that that makes us righteous before God, then that will make us into rude, arrogant, boastful people. And this this is quite possible why many people in their experience with the church view view Christians this way. Because we do believe that it's up to us. That it's up to us for how God relates to us. But I want you to see what Paul says love is. What he says is that it's patient and it's kind. 
that it's centered towards the other. It's patient with another, towards another person. It's kindness towards another person. You see that? He's saying love is other-oriented. It's for the good of someone else. And this is costly. Loving like this is costly. It's not convenient. I, I have to confess to you, I feel like God has been teaching me this. I told our leadership team this on Monday. God has been working me over with this, this semester. And he's specifically been doing it when we go to volunteer at Mission Possible on Mondays from 3.30 to 5. When we go, and here's the thing, you know, I have five kids. Kids, I feel like generally like me in my experience. Like I'm, I can be silly and fun like, to play with them. The kids at Mission Possible are not buying into the hype at all. They're, like, they are not into it. And just to give you, just to give you an example, um, there's one kid, every time I talk to him, the only response I get is, shut up! <laughs> over and over. Not kidding. Um, there have been three times that I've been spat on as I've been talking to kids, like trying to get them to play with me, trying to get them to come, like, do, let's, let's like work on your math homework. Spit. <laughs> And they just like straight up don't like me. And I, and honestly, like there's part of that that's like super sad. And I'm, and I'm and I'm assuming that they have. There's probably some ways that like my presence as like an older man or maybe even a white man in their presence is like triggering to them. And that's sad. And it's every Monday at 3.30 rolls around and I'm like cranking out work. I'm working on my sermon. I'm answering. I'm getting caught up on emails finally. And 3.30 rolls around in my office. The, uh, I actually have an office set at this church in East Austin. It's really close to Mission Impossible. And I'm like, man, I maybe should just like stay here and work more and like get stuff done. Because what I'm about to do is I'm going to go to Mission Impossible and like no one's going to want to talk to me. And I might get spat on again and be told to shut up. <laughs> And so I don't want to go. And I had kind of this like moment of clarity like six weeks ago when I was thinking about trying to make up another excuse for not going and I realized, John, you're that kid. Like, how many times does God tell me something in his word and I essentially say, shut up? How many times has God poured out his love to me and I just like don't even care? You see, Jesus' love is so costly. He became a man. He came into our world. He was rejected. He was spat upon. And he was patient and kind to people like me. You just mess it up all the time. He is gracious towards sinners. Do you know why Paul can say love is patient and kind? Y'all, because Paul experienced this. Paul, before he became a Christian, was a terrorist. Did you know this? He was a religious terrorist. He, he is known 
for presiding over the first Christian martyr, the martyr of Stephen. In the book of Acts, it's recorded that there's somebody who's gathering everyone's coats right before they're about to go and throw rocks at this guy named Stephen, who's a Christian. They're going to kill him by stoning him to death. And the person who's gathering coats is basically like the host at the party. Like, let me take your coat for you. It's Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul. And it's so easy for us to like think of a stone, like to read like Stephen was stoned and not think about what that would have been like for the other Christians watching their friend be pelted over and over with large rocks until he died. To hear his bones crack and his teeth chip and blood fill his face as he's dying. That's who Saul was. The last thing that's said about Saul before he's converted is that Saul was entering house after house and having people arrested for being a Christian. That means if, like, if Saul lived in West Campus, we would all be terrified to be meeting here right now because he was kicking people's doors down. And Saul is on the road to Damascus to go do more of the same, and Jesus shows up to him, and Jesus shows him kindness. Jesus is patient with Saul. And Saul says, Paul says, that's what love is. That's love. It's so otherworldly that Christians had to invent a new kind of word to describe the love of God. An entirely new Greek word that they called agape. Um, One of my New Testament commentaries I was reading in preparation for this describes agape love this way. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. A love which proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from the merit in the beloved. Listen to that again. Agape love proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. Agape love doesn't happen because we've done all the right things and now God's going to relate to us well. It proceeds from the very nature of who God is. As one who is plentiful and bountiful in his love and ready to share it. So what? Um, so I was, uh, I was on the YouTubes this week, as I uh, like to do sometimes. And YouTube suggested for me that I watch an Ed Sheeran peep show which sounded a little weird, but I was intrigued and uh, seemed like it, it was like clean, I thought, I figured. And so watched it and it's just like clearly this like prank that people are doing, this, this guy's doing, this radio show. And they, uh, they set up this like really sketchy looking sign in like a city that's advertising $2 for a 30 second Ed Sheeran peep show. And... <laughs> There's this guy out there. I bet you didn't think this was going to be my final illustration. Um, there's this guy out there, and he's got like a mustache, like a glued-on mustache and like a bowl cut. And he's like, peep show? Peep show? Anyone want to see an Ed Sheeran peep show? And like all these people are like, uh, no thanks. And like they don't want to do it. And it takes two, two hours and 23 minutes for them to finally get this like guy and girl couple who are walking down the street, and they're like, the guy was like, please, like, come on, like, it's a great show, great show, $2, Ed Sheeran Peep, Ed Sheeran Peep show, like, come in here. And uh, they're like, 
finally get convinced. They walk in, they pay their $2, they walk behind this curtain and sit on the bench, and they're like, please, uh, please stay seated for the peep show. Uh, and then right before the guy closes the curtain, he's like, enjoy your peep. And like closes, <laughs> closes the curtain. And then all of a sudden, the curtain that's in front of them just swoops up, and Ed Sheeran is sitting there from like five feet away from them. And he starts like very tenderly playing, thinking out loud to them. This like guy and girl who are just sitting there. And he plays it for 30 seconds and then the curtain just goes down and Ed Sheeran immediately stops. And the guy's like, do you enjoy your peep? And they're just like, what? Like that was like, the, what just happened? That was like the craziest 30 seconds of my life. Like he was right there. And you know what they do after they walk out? Guess what they do after they walk out? They have to tell all the people on the street. This like crazy proposition that this guy's, it's actually true. And so these people who are like very skeptical and like, what even is this? They immediately go, what, what they want to do because they've experienced this thing is now they want to share it. And what, what Paul is saying is, if God has loved a rebel like you, Christian Corinthian, or Christian UT student, or maybe even like, UT student who's not a Christian and thinking about it. I would tell you, God loves rebels like Paul. He loves screw-ups like me. Anyone who would come to him and call out for him for mercy, he will show mercy to. And so, what this means is that if we experience something this good, this kind of love, Paul says, if you've truly experienced this love, then what you're going to want to do is share the love. That's what happens when you've, when you've been loved this way. And it, it actually begins changing you and forming you and making you into a person who's patient and kind. As over and over and over again, you experience the kindness of God for you. That he loves you. And so what I would encourage you um, is if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm not... I don't think about other people much. I don't, I'm not other-oriented. I don't love. Here's my proposition for you. My proposition is not for you to recommit. This is like this word that's kind of like leaked into Christian t- lingo. Like you need to recommit your life to Jesus. And... What I would suggest that you would do instead is that you would repent. Because this is what repentance is. I used to think that repentance is, here's this bad thing that I'm doing. I'm going to turn from this bad thing that I'm doing. And now I'm going to turn to the good thing that I should do. And then God will be cool with me. I'm going to recommit to doing that, to doing the right thing. That is not repentance. That is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, here's this bad thing that I'm doing. I'm not loving people. I'm going to turn from this bad thing and I'm going to turn to Jesus who loves people who are rebels like me, who shows grace to me. I'm going to, ret- I'm going to turn to him and what I'm going to see is that my relationship with him is not based upon my commitment to him. It's based on his commitment to me. You don't have to recommit your life Because it was never based on your commitment to him. God relates to you based on his commitment to you, to sinners. 
And as we come to know that and believe that, and as we repent over and over to this gracious king, it will change you. A life of repentance will form you into a person who is patient and kind like your God. And he holds that out to you. Let's be a community of people who is patient and kind, who is not rude, who is not boast or arrogant, who does not seek their own way. Let's live for the good of others because our God has done that for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would, um, that you would plant it deep in our hearts and that you would help us to love others in light of it. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.